and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Turn the lights off on me. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to Q. Everyone all right? Well done for making it through another week. I mean, I know I congratulate myself every week for making it through because the week can be like, woo! So everyone who's made it here today, well done. Uh, and I think uh, sometimes it's good to remind yourself that you're actually starting your week here. Uh, and I think just reframing a few things in your life, learning some new stuff is really valuable. So uh, welcome, and I hope it you get something out of it this morning. Um, I do have some notices to do. I've got the notices job. Uh, so here's some things I've uh, noticed. Uh, you like it? I've got some. I'm not jesting. All right. So when you're crossing the road and a car's letting you go, yeah? There's one of two ways you can cross it. You either do it like this, like me, where you pretend that you've inconvenienced the person, and you go, oh. <laughs> um, but it's actually no quicker than walking. And then you get these ones. The eyeballers. So yeah, that's something I've noticed. <laughs> I mean, you might notice it more now. Uh, actually, I was talking to Liz the other week. I don't mean to embarrass you, Liz, but... She noticed that in restaurants now, if you ask for salad cream with your meal, forget it. <laughs> and I have to say, I hadn't noticed that, and now, but now she's said it. You see it everywhere. So, um, you know, we're a community here, so if you ever see salad cream anywhere in a restaurant, please do let us know, and we can sort of pass that information on. Uh, or think of any other solutions. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're doing community here. Um, is there someone on the screen? Yeah, let, let's have a look at the screen, because that might actually help me do some actual notices that might be of value to you. Uh, so next Sunday, uh, we're going to go to Saltburn. So we won't be in here. If you turn up here, it'll be locked up. Um, but if it's sunny, you could just have a sit down on the step and pretend that you're at Saltburn if you've gone. Uh, yeah, so it's beach day. Hang on a minute. I've finished. There's more info than that, right? Uh, oh, yeah, and uh, we meet by the beach huts at Saltburn from chapter 10, verse 30 a.m. <laughs> Sorry for the Bible people. Um, one other thing to note is if you're struggling with getting a lift there, um, there might be one or two of you, just please go and talk to Beth. Wave, Beth. That's Beth. That's her hand. So if you see a hand like that, <laughs> talk to her. Okay, next. We've got um, Rob Hornby is coming to talk to us again the week after. Looking forward to that. I'm sorry, God. 
and the week after that, oh, it's not the week after that, but uh, we've got another one coming up that on Sunday, the 13th of August. There's a garden party at the Faramons. Uh, has everyone let them know if they're attending yet? Right, we need another hand in the air. Give us a wave, Maggie or Dave. Go and see that person there if you want to uh, join us that day. I don't think I've let you know yet. Sorry, I do apologize. Yeah, <laughs> he's noticed that. Very good. We're all very sharp this morning. Um, what else is there? Yeah, so um, Danny is off this week. I don't know if you noticed. Big thanks to Connor for stepping in and doing the keys this morning. Um, but if any of you usually uh, uh, need to contact Danny for anything, he's off until the 10th. Um, so please let anyone else around it wave your hand in the air. There's going to be a lot of hands, right, if you're available to be talked to on these issues. Not me. Don't ring me. Uh, no, but you can if you want, but, you know, I'll pass you on to someone else. <clears throat> uh, today's a special day. It's the 2nd of July, and it's uh, Jenny's birthday. Happy birthday, Jenny. I just, I don't mean to embarrass you. The only reason I remember that is because 12 years ago today, I was standing on this stage getting married. Woo! And sadly, she couldn't be here this morning because Jacob's a bit poorly. But we're, we're fine, honestly. <laughs> okay. Was there anything else anyone needed me to mention? Because I think, I think that's okay. So we've got uh, Joel and Claire this morning. Uh, and they're going to talk to us. And I've just got a quote from a book to intro that, uh, that I got the other day. And I thought it was really good for kicking off some information here. Uh, it says, some ideas. Oh, it's from a book called um, The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, by the way. It's very good. He's a record producer. Um, but he says this about his book. Some ideas may resonate. Others may not. A few may awaken an inner knowing you forgot you had. Use what's helpful. Let go of the rest. Each of these moments is an invitation to further inquiry, looking deeper, zooming out or in, opening possibilities for a new way of being. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I, lo I love Desperate Housewives. Um, and that was a clip from Desperate Housewives with the character Brie Vanderkamp. Um, and it's a classic, albeit quite extreme for dramatic purposes, example of a woman full of virtue and good intentions. Uh, she's wanting to make her daughter's birthday perfect. She believes her intentions are good and that she's doing it all out of love and service for her child. Not a bad thing, one would say, but... As we can see from the clip, she doesn't, it doesn't play out this way, does it? And she is completely blind to how narrow-minded her focus has become and how her best intentions have become passive-aggressive and slightly unhinged. She's lost the intended connection with her daughter by becoming obsessive and controlling. And what in her head is an act of loving emotion actually becomes an act of destructive behaviours, which by the end of a clip is pretty clear to see. And this morning, uh, me and Joel are going to be talking to you this morning, um, I wanted to lead on further from my last talk about emotions. Uh, and previously, if you haven't heard it, I talked about how seemingly negative emotions can often be dismissed in our need to fix things and, and brush them under the carpet because we can't have those things because they're not productive, but actually how negative emotions or seemingly negative emotions can actually be something that serve us 
and, and help us understand about ourselves and how sometimes we have to walk through uncomfortable processes that need to happen in order for us to grow. If you want to hear any more on that, please feel free to go back and listen. But a concept I came across whilst I was studying uh, the topic of emotions, it was, it was from a Brené Brown book called Atlas of the Heart. And it was a Buddhist concept, actually, called Near and Far Enemies. And I found it fascinating when I looked into it, and I just wanted to share some of my findings with you briefly this morning. So a bit of background. All Buddhist traditions include the practices of the four immeasurables, sometimes known as the four Brahma Viharas, I don't know if I said that right, or four virtues of the heart. And these are loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And if, like me, you've never heard of that word equanimity, I'm sure many of you have, but I hadn't, what that means is about calmness and balance and composure. And the far enemies that they refer to in this concept are pretty, basically the opposites, the opposites of those emotions. So the opposite of loving kindness is cruelty, and a far enemy of compassion would be ill will. Of joy, it would be envy and jealousy. And of equanimity, a far enemy could be greed, prejudice, paranoia. So the far enemies are actually pretty easy to see and recognize in ourselves. And then we can try and navigate and, and regulate them because it's just a bit more obvious when you're kind of operating in the extreme. But then that are the near enemies, and this is the stuff I loved. These are the ones that we actually really need to watch for, as a near enemy is a deceptive substitute of a seemingly positive virtue, like if we stick with the four, like loving kindness and compassion, but one can settle for and confuse for the real thing. And the danger with near enemy is that they will unravel connection every single time. Brenny Brown writes, and we've got a slide with her quote on, hopefully. Uh, where is it? Uh, on the surface, the near enemies of emotions might look or even feel like connection, but ultimately, they drive us to be disconnected from ourselves and from each other. Without awareness, near enemies become the practices that fuel separation, rather than practices that reinforce the inextricable connection of all people. So it's all about how we're connecting with each other in our relationships. And the near enemy of loving kindness is attachment or conditional love. The near enemy of compassion is pity. And of shared joy, it can be, and I found this one really interesting, over-optimism. <laughs> And of equanimity, it is indifference, and you shrug it off. So to give you some examples, let's look at the near enemy of loving kindness. So attachment or conditional love. So that's to be clingy, to be needy, to be codependent. I, I mean, I know I've been there when I've got a fear of lose, lo losing or being hurt. I can become quite clingy and, and a bit possessive. I mean, and, and, and that sounds really obvious when you say it like that, but they can be quite subtle, these things. We can do this with our partners, with our parents, with our children, our friends, fear of missing out when we feel threatened that we're missing out on something, 
or we feel like something's not working out, we can try and sort of hone in on that thing. Um, and any relationship that we hold in high value, when it feels threatened, we tighten our control. American Buddhist and Enlightenment author Jack Cornfield writes on the matter, attachment masquerades as love. It says, I'll love this person because I need something from them. Or, I'll love you if you love me back. Or, I'll love you, but only if you love me the way I want. This isn't the fullness of love. It's being attached and needy. The cake, this cake, is a symbol of my love, as Bree said in the clip. But true love honors and appreciates, because it's honest. You know, we all know in 1 Corinthians 13, Love is patient, it is kind, it does not envy, does not boast, does not dishonor others, and it is not self-seeking. It always protects and trusts. Attachment grabs, it demands, it needs, and it aims to possess. A needy, possessive, codependent relationship may look and feel like love, but actually it can be full of fear and non-acceptance. Likewise, with the near enemy of equanimity, an easygoing, accepting attitude may appear a lot like equanimity, but in fact, it's more based on resignation and indifference than being dismissive. And with joy, the near enemy of optimism. It doesn't sound that bad, but optimism or over-optimism can be a crafty tool for reframing and distancing ourselves from undesirable feelings or experiences we want to avoid. We push away the unwanted using colourful explanations and the power of positivity. But I believe in it all, there is a common denominator, control. It's such a sneaky thing sometimes to spot. We believe we're all being well-intentioned and virtuous, but often we can actually be making up, sorry, we can be masking up the real subconscious motive of control, because a lot of this is about motive. Is the near enemy of connection, therefore, control? One could argue it's the opposite of our enemy, but I wonder if it's a little bit more understated than that. For example, if I use myself, when I see my kids struggling or suffering by something that's happened at school or with a friend, or if they're struggling with their learning, I can jump in to fix it. I want to fix. I'm so guilty of this as well. A lot of people who know me know I, I like to fix. I mean, home learning, oh my God, that really exposed some stuff in me. God. My fear of them not doing well <clears throat> and not being okay. My anxiety of being seen to be doing things well, to be being a good mum. My love was actually need and my connection was lost through my need to control. And by doing that, by jumping in to fix things, I'm not offering them the space to figure this stuff out with me. I'm doing it for them. That's not going to help them understand how to move through struggle, is it? So in this instance, I can have severed connection for the sake of control, and I'm trying to control hurt, my discomfort, their discomfort, as I want to just make it better. We just want to make things better, which doesn't seem a bad thing. That's what 
so dangerous about near enemies. It doesn't seem that bad. It's natural to want to alleviate the suffering of someone we love. However, but that is why near enemies are hard to spot, as what we believe is good virtue and well-intended practice can actually come from a place of fear. And then the need to control and fix becomes the actual root of my actions and not the love and connection I think it is. And it's actually a term, love this, Tibetan Buddhists call idiot compassion. <laughs> I really liked that. So compassion is the wish to alleviate suffering, the far enemy of which is cruelty, but the near enemies are pity and overwhelm. So when instead of feeling the openness and connectedness of real compassion, you can close down and widen the sense of separation between ourselves and others, and even with dealing with yourself. You know, when you're being self-compassionate, that's, that's something that's going to give you tools to, to help encourage you and learn and grow because you're being awake and aware and you're trying to kind of love yourself. But when we get into self-pitying, there's just a downward spiral of feeling sorry for yourself, you're closed in, and it isn't empowering. So in our interactions with others, it could be languaged as, oh, I feel so sorry for them, or that poor person, which, again, doesn't seem that bad, but instead of feeling their suffering and sitting with them, it allows us to objectify it and put a distance between us. Or we try to come at a person's suffering from where we are, instead of meeting them where they are and being willing to help them walk the steps to get through. So if someone's experienced something and they're here and you're here, if you come at them always from here, it, it, it's not going to work. You have to somehow meet them where they are and help be their guide, their coach, to help them through the steps. That's compassion. We overload it with our great wisdom and knowledge I'm not like having a go at anyone, this is me. I'm just literally telling you about myself here. And we put our own experience onto them instead of being in their experience with them. What I need to do is sit in the pain with them and be a loving companion. And again, not so to the overwhelm bit, not getting so involved that I'm carrying it all myself and then I become in the suffering. I'm not sure that's helpful either. But it's about being a guide and a supportive authority, as Jenny beautifully talked about last week, but through connection and meeting them where they are. So the thing to do is to be in connection and not to fix or enable. So why am I telling you all this? I just felt it was a fascinating concept that I have found to be helpful, to be mindful of. It's vital for us to have meaning connections and relationships which ultimately make us decent human beings. And if you're wondering where God is in all of this, well, I'd argue that it's everywhere, because this is the culture of Christ consciousness, about connection, about community, about being relational. It's important for consciousness, movement, and evolution to know how to be consciously looking at our intentions so we can connect and move with our relationships, always willing to question our virtues and evolve. Only yesterday, I was literally sat at the computer doing this talk, and James, my husband, came and sat with me, and he was talking through some things he was struggling with. And I went to interrupt him and his thought process to offer my knowledge on the matter, but I immediately noticed what I was doing. 
I was trying to fix his uncomfortableness and not let him sit in his hurt and ask himself its root. He needed to play it all out and work it with me in figuring out how best to handle it. My control kicked in, and what I believed was going to be a moment of great help was actually just going to be me enabling his issues further by offering a well-intended, maybe condescending message instead of letting him just be uncomfortable. Because I hate uncomfortableness. I mean, I think a lot of us do, to be fair. And my compassion had turned into me wanting to fix, and I felt sorry for him. Um, and I needed to just be a helpful support. That kind of interaction is what will bring people to healing and bring people to understanding the beauty of Christ consciousness. But when we're so engaged in an emotion, be it virtuous or one of a negative one, like anger, the result is the same. We become blind to anything else and we focus in, like Brie, she was just focused in. All because she could see was what she was looking at. We're almost blinkered to the other factors at play. We want to fix the negative emotion by sidestepping it or pushing it down. Or we can see seemingly acting virtuously, but our near enemy is kicked in. And the true motive is to cover the perceived lack and operate from a more unhelpful stance. Either way, we are operating from a place of control. Lack. When we feel we are lacking, be it from our fears or our anxieties, a sense of control kicks in and we get tunnel vision. The person in the interaction becomes almost irrelevant or either a project to be fixed or an inconvenience to shrug off. Thankfully, the way to deal with these near enemies is pretty straightforward if you're willing to question yourself. It all starts with becoming aware of them. And once you are aware, then it becomes trickier for them to deceive you. We almost need to learn to zoom out and see the bigger picture. Me and Joel were talking about this the other day. Why is my subconscious behaving this way? And what can I consciously do to see the truth at play here? And I know Joel's going to talk about some of that a little bit more. So how are you operating within your relationships how do you interact with your other half, with your children, your friends? Are you being open and authentic, trusting and empathetic? Or is your joy shared? Is, no, is your joy shared? Is your compassion understanding? Is your love connective? Is your calmness balanced? Or is there a small sniff of an interior motive and is a near enemy at play? And is there a need to control? The saying goes, the road, to, and I actually thought this was a Bible verse, and thankfully Chris corrected me because I would have looked ridiculous if I'd said that. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Being virtuous can be a dangerous thing. Welcome to my own private hell, Danielle says of her mother's love. The road to disconnect, the road to control, my own private hell is paved with good intentions. So just ask yourself next time, what's my intention? What are my emotions telling me? Is there a motive? Can I recognize a near enemy of this? And how am I working that in my relationships with those around me? Being open and honest about who and what we are and what we are feeling is always the best route to take. Being honest is always the best way to go as it at least gives opportunity for connection to happen 
and progress to be made. So let's try give up the struggle of wishing and wanting things to be different and be confident to be all that life has to offer you, both difficult and challenging, and it's joyful awesomeness. Thank you. Do you want that? You don't. There's a clip. There's awesome, a clip. Claire. Yeah. I'm on the um, black one. I'm going to leave the clip, I think, uh, just so we can. George, you want to stand up and stretch your legs a little bit? That was amazing, Claire. No? You're happy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> right, so following on from that then, um, there were some great concepts there, and I know that Jenny had spoken last week about the, um, the generational changes um, that we see play out. Um, and it's interesting because I think emotions and feelings are, um, what's the word I need to use, very... Um, apt for today's world in that um, feelings and emotions at present are celebrated as what seems to be an absolute. Um, and so much so, yeah, the emphasis is a great word, to the extent that what a person feels or what emotions they manifest, we will manipulate and recreate things around them to affirm their emotional bias. Um, and that isn't helpful for anybody, really. And, and interestingly, you would assume that that was just generation, which was the new one, Zed, is it? Zed. Uh, but I would say, actually, in general, feelings and emotions are becoming at the fore of how we function. And as Claire said, emotions and feelings have a place in our life, but they need to find their rightful place and not be the thing that's ultimately driving um, our lives. Now, an emotion as such tells you nothing about reality beyond the fact that something makes you feel something. Without an honest commitment to observing your own thought processes in order to identify your inner state, you will not truly discover what you actually feel, what sparks that feeling, and whether your feeling is an appropriate response to the facts of reality or a mistaken response, let's call it an illusion produced by years of self-deception. That's quite powerful. I've had numerous conversations over my lifespan with my mum, where she will say to me this, Joel, is this an appropriate response to what actually happened, or a reaction based on what you think happened? Now that sounds a bit mean, doesn't it? in the respects of if your feelings, now, now, Joel, Joel, let me just ask you a question. And it's a very valid question because the truth of the matter is, are we responding based on what actually happened or what we perceived? And you will come up with very different conclusions, right? And it's a very valid question, very valid. An emotion is an affective response. Now, when I use the word affective, and I looked up this, this week, Effective and affective have different meanings. Affective is the re that the response is the primary component, right? So the response to something is the primary, not the thing itself. So an emotion is an affective response to a subconscious evaluation of a perceived experience, whether it be beneficial or harmful to oneself. So for a few minutes this morning, 
Let's look at how we understand the role of emotions and feelings within our lives and subsequently how we should treat them. Now, the primary factor of basic emotions is to do with verdict. Is the object being judged as for me or against me? Is it beneficial or harmful? Now, just a couple of examples with regards to emotions. Joy and sadness, for example, are emotions based on your completed relationship, relationship to the object at hand. So it's come to completion. You feel joy because of a completed feeling. Same with sadness. The gain or loss has been realized. Fear and desire, however, are emotions pertaining to the possible outcome in the future. Now, might I say at this point, this is the reason I'm going to mention this later on, why fear is discussed so much in Scripture, because the fact that it's about what pertains to future means you're living in a possible state all the time of what might be and not living within a reality. And it's interesting that the Bible also talks about joy unspeakable, the idea that joy is something that you realize and is a realized experience, whereas fear is about something that might not even be happening yet, and yet you live your life according to that belief. So the fundamental factors as to how we emotionally respond are this. One, the verdict. Think of almost like a court case, right? Is this for me or against me? And number two, your present relationship to the object at hand. Is the gain or loss realized, or is this a future possibility? Now, the question that has to be asked is this. Are our emotions a healthy response? Are your emotions a healthy response? Or a neurotic response adopted as a defense against anxiety? Are you motivated by love or are you motivated by fear? Now, when we say neurotic, I'm going to get onto this to explain because that can it can sound like almost a bit of an insulting word, you know, well, are you trying to suggest? No, it's the idea that our, our mind is based on previous experiences and it's not aligned with what's actually happening in the current moment, which I'm going to explain and hopefully help you with as we go through this. Now, here's a question for you. Are emotions and feelings tools for cognition? Now, when I say tools for cognition, I mean are they a reliable source that guides us to action, to give us information, our emotions and our feelings? Well, first of all, we have to, have to ask the question, what are our tools for cognition and thinking in life? So we have one which is sensory, that which comes to you automatically through sensors, right? Contact to the experience. Or number two, we have the mind, the intellect, and that means we identify and integrate the things we observe within the world around us. Now, within the idea of sensory and intellect, we have to look at, as Claire's just mentioned, the role of the subconscious and the conscious in one's emotional response to life. Now, most emotions, whether we like it or not, result from subconscious evaluation. Hear that. Most emotions, whether you like it or not, are a result of subconscious evaluation. And I'll tell you why. The subconscious 
has no mind of its own. It can't think, the subconscious, right? But was formed by the conscious, right? Every thought you have has been thought by your conscience, right? So it's like an archive in the brains. They say that every thought you've ever had in your life is stored in your brain. You can never get rid of it, right? And there's a lot to be said on that, but I'm not going to go too deep. It's quite scary, isn't it? Like an office with all the, the drawers, you know, you have to pull them out, which is why, and I think I've talked about this quite a few years back, any pain that you experience from a past experience, you have to actually pull that thought out of your archive and bring it into your present experience in order to feel it, which I know that's a whole different conversation, but it's quite a powerful, powerful thing, really. Now, to live actively aware and conscious means we are in charge of our conscious minds, actively querying your subconscious database. I remember last week, Jenny, you mentioned about the, um, how we're moving into AI, and the only, it's going to happen, right? The only way that we can deal with that is by when the information is given to you, you query and question, well, is what I'm being told right, or do I need to hold it to scrutiny and challenge it? You don't just react to whatever pops into your mind, which I know is very difficult. And again, like Claire says, I'm equally talking to myself here on the journey that I'm on, right? Now, to focus the conscious mind means you respond, again, back to the conversation I used to have with my mum all the time, you respond to the full context, not just whatever happens to occur to you in the given moment. Like you said, you have to step back and look at it with, at a wider stance, now, emotional responses stem from habitual ideas. The subconscious not only contains stored content of experiences, but get this, but also methods of how we deal with them. So it's not only stored experiences, but the methods in which we deal with those things, which that's actually more of the problem that we have to look at. Yep, so what emotions you feel are based on your premises and this is a direct result of the methods we use of integrating and disintegrating data. So emotions come to you as if they are accurate perceptions of that which you are facing, okay? But emotions don't respond to the actual situation but are a result of your own conclusions to the situation. Let me say that again. Emotions don't respond to the actual situation, but are a result of your own conclusions to the situation. Emotions are the experience of that which you have concluded about your reality. I think that's really powerful stuff. It's just great. <clears throat> I read a great statement this week. Listen to this. Emotions are a form of awareness, but they are not a perception of reality. Emotions don't have a brain. They are a form in which you experience your conclusions about reality, and they are only as valid as those conclusions. Very powerful stuff. Now, previously, before when I was talking, I used the word integration. 
Now, integration means we are more connected to reality. I don't know whether you remember, but years back, Chris spoke about integrity and what integrity means. And I remember being blown away by that because integrity basically comes from the word integration and to be integrated, right? Well, of course, you know, when you then think, yeah, that makes sense. The idea that a man with integrity is the man who integrates his thought processes. Now, again, like I say, I had a very different idea of this word until, until that day, but it's really helped me understand integrity and integration. Now, integration demands that one is willing to be critical of his processes using reason in order to come to healthier conclusions. Isn't it interesting? I say this all the time. Jesus said, come, let us reason together. There's a scripture in James 3 verse 17 that says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, I love that, then peaceable, gentle, open to what? Reason, full of mercy and good fruits, listen to this, impartial and sincere. I love that word impartial. Impartial implies that it has no bias. It is about wisdom, awareness, and perception. Reason is the powerful tool that guides us to check our conclusions and relation to the world around us. Emotions aren't like this. Emotions are a reaction to our current perceptions. So referring back to what I said earlier, referring back to whether emotion is a tool for cognition or not. Fear, let's take fear for an example, Fear is not sensory per se, nor is it intellectual of dealing with things. It's actually just a feeling you get. An emotion is like a claim made on you. Let's use an example. If someone shouts, danger, flee, right? Flee. I spelt it F-L-E-A as well earlier on. I'm thinking, flee! <laughs> Might be dangerous. If you believe it, you will feel fear, right? Even if it happens to be right, the claim does not establish that reality for you. You don't come to know it just because it was shouted, danger, flee. You can only respond based on what you hear and your reaction to what you hear. Now, some of you, and I say this including myself, will be feeling things simply based on people's comments and statements in the past that whether they were right or whether they were wrong, bear no relation to what is happening to you right now. And that is, when I wrote that this week, I thought this has got to be about me and where I am. But I also thought, even within the context, how many of you, including me, recite experiences from your history that may have been very specific and right within the time, but you are living your life now carrying that same burden of that emotion that bears no relation to your current reality. And I think that if there's anything you take away from this morning, I think you need to query that because it's not helping you or assisting you in living a joyful life. It, it just doesn't. It hinders you, actually. Now, emotions are not unnecessarily untrustworthy. Now, some of you may be thinking the way I'm talking is as if to suggest that somehow emotions are wrong. No, 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 they're, they're not at all. It's just how we treat them 
that we have to, we have to look at. So there may be a danger, and maybe you should flee. That doesn't flee. You're going to be thinking of flee. That doesn't change the fact your feeling of fear is a reaction to the information you've just received. Feelings and fear isn't what establish your direct connection to what is occurring. An emotion is a reaction to the evaluation and not the tool of evaluation itself. Now, we have to look at this word fallible. You've all heard of fallible and infallible. Yeah, fallible is basically the idea that it's not, it's, what's the best way to explain it? It's not unending, it's not... Um, Can't be questioned, yeah, it's like um, fallible means, infallible means it's almost, yes, what she just said, yeah, no, it's brilliant, it's great. So fallible is the, infallible basically means that it can't be questioned, it's, uh, it's a thing that is what it is and it can't, it's not open for discussion. Fallible is, um, you could say it's fleeting, it's, you know, it's, can change, yeah, exactly. So man's emotions are based on his conceptual evaluations, which are fallible. Depending on how you have stored a response, this will ultimately create habitual methods of functioning. Now, trying to repress and evade the subconscious, that creates the emotions, that creates the emotions won't achieve anything long term. It is the thinking that leads to it that must be assessed. The thinking that produces the conclusions and ultimately created the methods that became our automized responses are what need to be challenged. So it's the thinking, not the emotions themselves, that we need to challenge. Now, psychology and the job of a good psychologist, they know repressed and evaded emotions can lead to anxiety and depression. But they also know faulty conclusions due to incorrect thought processes can also lead to anxiety and dep depression. And their job is actually to retrain your mind to think correctly. I would like to believe that Q is offering that forum. Anthor was used to say, we're not here to teach you what to think, but teach you how to think. And it's about the way that we use our mind, which I think is really important. The quality of your output is determined by the quality of your input. If it's programmed by chance and by whim, your life will present accordingly. We refer back to modeling when I spoke a few uh, months back. What you put into the machine, depending on whether that's got emotional bias or judgment or whatever, will ultimately give you um, a certain output. An emotion is like an idea that pops into your mind. Just because it pops in your head doesn't make it true, but it should also never be disregarded instantly. Neither can it be endorsed uncritically. It requires conscious effort and conscious thought and conscious judgment of all aspects of the process. I hope this is making some sense anyway. So bringing it to a close. What you know and what you feel are different things. 
Now, how do we distinguish these? So let me just give you a few, few thoughts to finish. What is an emotion and what is a rational judgment? Now, emotions and rational judgment and reason should complement each other, not compete with each other. Question one, do you have enough information to reach a conclusion? A rational judgment in contrast to emotions involves checking one's considered judgment, checking one's premises, searching areas of improperly formed concepts. Reason and emotion are two different realities. Reason means we supervise and verify our judgments. So do you have enough information to reach a conclusion? The second question to ask is this, or the second point to raise is rationality and reason does not mean the absence of emotion. Being rational and reasonable doesn't make you a drone, right? Emotion means, some people can think this, emotions means we are sensitive and alive, whereas reason is just cold and callous, empty and void, right? Some emotions, and I refer to myself again here, are so disruptive that they disturb your mind and render you incapable of functioning. I would say I'm at a point in my life at the minute where I'm kind of there. Well, now, it doesn't mean that some of the fears I have are not potentially rational, but I have to step back, and if I don't step back, it becomes so loud and so disruptive that I can, again, like I say, start living subconsciously and let my thoughts think me rather than me think my thoughts, if, if that makes sense. Um, again, check, I have to check my premises. Jenny said something beautifully the other week. She said to me, the problem is, Joel, is we can live on high alert all the time. We can live as if catastrophe is going to occur at any second. So a bus coming towards you hurtling at 80 miles an hour, that is a rational perspective. You should probably step out of the way. If I'm sat in my living room at home drinking tea, thinking a bus at 80 miles an hour is going to drive through the front window, that's probably a slightly irrational fear, but then if I'm living my life as if it's going to happen any given second, that's not a, it's not a healthy place to be, to be or live, and some of you will understand and have that same experience. A healthy individual whose ability to reason and feel are in harmony with each other, they think with passion and energy. It is absolutely possible to be emotionally alive without identifying your ego with your emotions. Many of us are now defined by our emotions. We've, we believe that our emotions are who we are rather than just a part of the expression that we give. Being detached and repressed is not an example of integration and reason. Reality is not your enemy. Reality is not your enemy. Truth is of crucial importance to your life's journey. Emotions don't have to be an enemy they are only the enemy if they are in the driver's seat. Reason isn't about snubbing emotions or living dispassionately. It is a passionate commitment to knowing the full truth. So in conclusion then, the bottom line is this, and I'm going to quote this from a book that I've recently read. Those emotions you worship as an idol 
on whose altar you sacrifice the earth, that dark, incoherent passion within you that you take as the voice of God, but is nothing more than the corpse of your mind. An emotion that you cannot explain or control is only the carcass of the stale thinking which you forbade your mind to revise. Isn't that just amazing? An emotion that you cannot explain or control is only the carcass of the stale thinking which you forbade your mind to revise. Incredible. And I'm challenging myself with that today as well. It says in the Bible, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We used to say that that, that word comes from the it will forcibly impose upon you. Yeah, freedom upon you. Our quest should be to know the truth. Even when our emotions are screaming, don't look, don't let it be true, I, I don't want to know. This may demand something of me, and we are willing to consciously evaluate that which we feel. Are we willing to consciously evaluate that which we feel? And in closing, just another statement from a book I recently read said this, you seek escape from pain, we seek the achievement of happiness. You exist for the sake of avoiding punishment. We exist for the sake of finding joy. Fear is not our incentive. It is not death we wish to avoid, but it is life that we choose to live. Um, I've got to a point in my life where I'll be really honest, I have a really irrational fear of death. It's come at me really, really heavy recently. And it is irrational. Um, and I'm finding that then my life is, is um, what's the word, manifesting that fundamental feeling and, and emotion. And uh, it's, it's a journey that I'm on at the minute, and I'm, you know, I'm happy to be accountable about that, which is why I think that what I've just said today, how do we treat emotions, um, this has to now become part of my, you know, my not just my subconscious, but about my awareness of how to integrate everything in my life is to, to make for more of a joyous experience, really. So, so that's the journey that I'm on. So to finish, before we just play a song to finish, um, what emotions do you need to revise? It might, you might need to take that away and have a think. What emotions are you living by default that may not even be real or rational anymore? Um, are you willing to step back um, and con consciously assess those things and integrate yourself and see whether really you are feeling something that's valid? It may be that there's a, a joy to be found beyond that um, that is far more free and a far more um, enjoyable life's experience, which is ultimately what we're aiming for. So is it time to rewrite the story? Um, we'll play you this song to finish. I hope that's helped. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>